Welcome to the Fem Health Podcast, where we focus on providing clarity and evidence-based facts in female health and wellness. The internet, or as us physicians like to say, Dr. Google, can be overwhelming for patients seeking reliable information. And unfortunately, not all of that information is backed by research, science, and real doctors. Here, we pride ourselves on demystifying medicine for you and giving you access to some of the most talented medical doctors who are experts in their field. I'm your host, Dr. Sian and I interview doctors so you can have an inside look at what I would ask my colleagues if I had a medical question. Let's get started with today's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Fem Health Podcast. So glad to have you here with us today. Very, very excited for today's episode because I get to interview a physician colleague who is also a friend. Today on the show, we have Dr. Anjali Mullick, who is a breast imaging radiologist and intervention specialist at Washington Radiology, which is based in Washington, D.C. After going to college at John Hopkins University, she then went to medical school at Tulane. She completed her residency at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center and Parkland Hospital in Dallas, Texas, and also has had the honor of being a BREM Fellow in Breast Imaging and Intervention at the GW University Medical Faculty Associates. Her academic interests and passions are in breast imaging, women's health, global health, preventive medicine, and healthy, eco-friendly living. She is also the co-chair for social media for the Society of Breast Imaging on the Government Relations and Breast Economics Committee for the American College of Radiology, a member of the Medical Society of the DC Advocacy Committee, and on the Bright Pink Medical Advisory Committee. She is an expert in all things related to breast health. So welcome to the show, Dr. Malik. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm super excited to be on today. Well, thanks for being here. And today we want to talk to you about how breast cancer is related to our fertility. And pretty interesting topic because I know many women that are listening may think, oh, my boobs are up here and my fertility's down there. So, you know, what's the relationship? This is something that, you know, I learned in medical school, but really happy to have you on today to get a good refresher. So Anjali, as a board certified radiologist, when you see patients and women, do they ever seem surprised that there's a relationship between fertility and breast health? Yes, they do. And kind of like you said, you know, they see them as two separate entities. But as we know, the body all works together as a system and really What links the two, the breast cancer and our fertility, is our hormones. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Okay, awesome. So let's dive right in. The first topic that I want to ask you about is pregnancy and breast cancer. So 30 is the magic age. Is that right, according to studies? Or am I totally off? Can you sort of explain to us how pregnancy and breast cancer is related? Yes, I can. And you are correct. 30 is sort of the number that they float out there. And let me explain. So we have risk factors for the development of breast cancer. And what they currently are saying based on hormone levels is that your first pregnancy before the age of 30 actually lowers your risk, while any first pregnancy after the age of 30 increases our risk. And again, it all goes back to hormones. So most breast cancers are sensitive to both estrogen and progesterone. And as soon as we become menstruating females, we have high levels of those circulating through our body. When we become pregnant, and particularly when we become pregnant before the age of 30, 
it lowers that level and the pregnancy becomes protective. Alternatively, when we have a pregnancy after the age of 30, the amount of estrogen being altered actually increases our risk. So that's why 30 is sort of that magic number, the goal to try to have your first pregnancy before so that you can lower your risk. Wow. Okay. I did not know that. I'm 37. So a little concerned, but good to know. And what about not having kids at all? In the medical world, that term is called nulliparity. How does that relate to our risk of breast cancer? So nulliparity, again, not having any pregnancies, basically just means that the body is exposed to that unopposed estrogen for a prolonged period of time. And that estrogen is what puts us at risk. And Saya, in terms of being 37, our two biggest risk factors for the development of breast cancer are being female and aging. And none of us can change that. So really, it becomes modifying any risk factors after that. So you know, we certainly know in this day and age, women do have pregnancies at later ages. And it's all about just trying to go into this process informed so that you can be making the best decisions for yourself. Right. And it's such an interesting relationship because of what you mentioned is that women are having kids later and later in life. And we're using fertility treatments. And there's been a lot of studies on, you know, does fertility cause an increase in cancer or the fertility treatments? And we know that it really doesn't. But just the fact that you can have kids later in life and that could be related is something that probably a lot of women don't realize. Exactly. And that's why a lot of what I use my social media platforms or just other platforms for is educating and empowering women on their breast cancer risks so they can be able to modify anything possible, whether it's maintaining a healthy weight or reducing their alcohol intake, because there are things that we aren't as able to control, such as when we have our first pregnancy. Right. And the guidelines are still the same, first mammogram around the age of 40? For the average risk female, the recommendation is annual mammograms starting at 40. If you are at increased risk, and that would be based on family history and other risk calculations, you would want to talk to your doctor or a breast cancer expert to be able to establish a protocol that would work to screen for you. And those risks could include, you know, family history and being genetically susceptible. and Exactly. So family history of breast cancer, family, and that would be at younger ages. So not all family history of breast cancer puts us at increased risk. So it's premenopausal breast cancer, family history of ovarian cancer, genetic mutations, and family history of some other cancers like pancreatic cancer or prostate cancer, or multiple members who start having breast cancer. So it's definitely a conversation with your physician or healthcare provider to be doing what's best for you. Awesome. And yeah, so definitely important women who are listening to know your family history and try to modify any other risk factors, especially if you are going to be having kids later in life. And then also kind of on the same fertility spectrum, how is breast cancer related to breastfeeding? So here's one good thing about having a pregnancy, even if it's later in life, is that breastfeeding can be chemoprotective and chemoprotective, meaning it can lower our breast cancer risk. So studies have shown that at least six months breastfeeding can help decrease our overall breast cancer risk. Now, you know, we know that breastfeeding is optimal for multiple reasons, but in the end, fed is best. So if you are able to breastfeed, that's great. Know that you are decreasing your risk as much as 4.3%. And if not, you know, 
there are other ways that you can be reducing your risk. And you said it's about six months that someone would need to breastfeed for it to be chemoprotective? Exactly. And some of that can be cumulative as well. So if you have three months with your first child and three months with your second child, that can count as your six months. Oh, awesome. And I think what you mentioned before is really important to reiterate is that fed is best. So again, I think breastfeeding is something that is really hard to control. I know a lot of women that have had some difficulty with it. So these are all things that if you can do them, great. But if not, there's, you know, other options to mitigate your risk. And obviously getting screened, knowing your family history, going to get your mammogram, super important ways to identify any problems early on. Exactly. And just, you know, knowing that breastfeeding can be chemoprotective is maybe just that small nugget you can have in your head when your baby's having trouble latching or you have mastitis, just that might be the one silver lining that you can think of. Yeah. You're like, oh, well, my cancer risk is going down even though my boobs are in pain. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So it's fine. So also for our listeners that are taking oral contraceptives, birth control pills, what does this mean for them in terms of their breast cancer risk? So oral contraceptives, there is a small increased risk in the development of breast cancer. But we also know that it can be chemoprotective, again, reducing the risk for ovarian cancer. And of course, oral contraceptives are used for a number of other reasons, in addition to birth control, for heavy menstruation, for acne. And so conversations like that become risk versus benefit discussion with your doctor or healthcare provider. And the same goes for hormone replacement therapy. We know that it's utilized in women who are either postmenopausal naturally or through surgical means or sometimes for women who have undergone oophorectomy as a risk-reducing surgery. And other than those who have undergone oophorectomy, which is the removal of the ovaries, the use of hormone replacement therapy does increase the risk for breast cancer. And again, it's just adding those hormones in the estrogen and the progesterone and knowing that those are targets for breast cancer. So many women use it for heart disease. They use it also because of their bone density. And again, it just becomes a conversation with your healthcare provider to do what's best for you. So just to summarize, birth control pills are going to increase our risk for breast cancer, but they decrease our risk for ovarian cancer. Exactly. And so a lot of women's health providers are comfortable with that slight increased risk, knowing that ovarian cancer is actually the harder of the two to detect. And so many will just go ahead and advise their patients to take it. And it's just all about having that conversation. And in terms of birth control, and what about the other forms of birth control that a lot of women are using? Is it equivalent, like the patch, an IUD? Like they're all sort of emitting hormones. So is it the same thing because it's a hormonal thing? The concept is the same. And we know that for the intrauterine devices specifically, They have lower levels of hormones, but I have seen effects systemically related to that even small dose of hormones. And it really is dependent woman to woman. I've seen breast cysts develop. I have seen post-lumpectomy, so post-breast cancer patients who had one of the hormone intrauterine devices and did develop a second cancer. Whether they were related or not, I don't know. But I think certainly for someone like her who had a hormone-dependent cancer the first time, having that on board did not help for the second one. So what does that mean after you've been diagnosed? 
with breast cancer, are you not allowed to take any birth control after that? If you are a woman who has been diagnosed with a hormone-sensitive breast cancer, so that's the estrogen and progesterone, then yes, you're looking at, number one, some form of hormonal therapy to block the hormone receptors on the breast cancer, and that often pushes women into early menopause. And so birth control would, of course, not be an issue at that point. And then for postmenopausal women, yes, they would be advised against taking any forms of hormonal replacement therapy. This is actually an interesting conversation because it also relates to fertility in a lot of ways that young women who are diagnosed with cancer and what are their fertility options before they start undergoing chemo. And I know it's kind of beyond the discussion of what we're trying to cover here in terms of fertility and breast cancer, but it does raise an important question of sort of knowing that you may have options to preserve your fertility if you do get diagnosed. Exactly. And one of the things I really talk a lot about is knowing your family history, knowing your risk, and specifically calculating your risk for the development of breast cancer or knowing whether you need to get genetic testing. So there are certain people who do qualify for genetic testing based on history and again, certain levels of risk that are high enough that we start becoming concerned for the chances for development. And for those women, it's really important to be having those conversations in the younger ages, in the 20s, or at the very latest early 30s, because as we discussed, family planning is delayed for many women these days. And for some of those women, they actually need to make those decisions earlier. They need to determine if they need to undergo fertility preservation, because otherwise they might be someone who develops a breast cancer in their late 20s or early 30s and have to preserve fertility while they're undergoing chemotherapy, which is totally possible. But it would be great if someone who goes on to be diagnosed with the you know, BRCA2 gene already knew that when she was in her young 20s and could decide if she wanted to have her family early, if she wanted to preserve her eggs, if she wanted to, you know, to be able to have those discussions. It's all about having discussions, having a plan, knowing your risks versus benefits, and just knowing what options are out there for you. Yeah, that's definitely money well spent, you know, getting some testing done, understanding where you lie on the spectrum of risk especially testing for some of those really high risk genes. I know I got tested for them and I don't even have a family history. It's just, it was something that I was able to do. So, you know, instead of buying myself something new, I just decided that, that was where I was going to put my money and totally worth it for me. Yeah. We're kind of talking about the younger ages. So let's just double back a little bit. We briefly chatted on hormone replacement therapy. So really who's the typical patient that's getting HRT? So sort of, two groups. One, as I sort of referred to, who naturally go into menopause. So, you know, your women in their upper 40s, 50s who have undergone menopause and are experiencing either, you know, symptoms that they would like to abate, whether it's the hot flashes or the moodiness, or sometimes it's just overall wellness. And they ask their physician for HRT. Some it's based on their bone density. And we know that some of the, you know, effects of estrogen do help build bone density and osteoporosis and you know associated fractures do have increased morbidity for older women some it's the heart protective benefits so i think there have been a lot of studies showing that the benefits can outweigh the risks for some older women when it comes to the protection related to heart disease and i cannot claim to be an expert on that i kind of stick to the breast when it comes to the chest 
And then the other target group for hormone replacement therapy is those who have either had surgical removal of the ovaries for risk reduction reasons. So those who are at increased risk for ovarian cancer or have a genetic mutation, or those who had to have the ovaries removed for other reasons, whether it's at the time of a hysterectomy or something along those lines. So those are typically the people that are taking hormones. Okay. So unless you've had basically surgery, it tends to happen later in life. You're getting HRT for menopause treatment or maybe treatment of osteoporosis. And that is going to increase your risk of breast cancer, correct? It slightly increased the risk for breast cancer. I mean, the effect that it has is the same on all women. It's a matter of whether that risk is outweighed by any potential benefit. As with anything, right? I mean, there are some things we can't really control, like when we have a kid, and I would love to be dial back eight years on my life right now so I can be in the under 30 age of having a kid to mitigate my risk. But some of the other things would be, you know, making sure I take my calcium every day so I'm at lower risk for osteoporosis and then maybe don't need HRT down the line. And of course, I'm sure there's women that do that too and still develop osteoporosis. So nothing is completely in our hand. But as you mentioned, that just having the options available to us, knowing that you can get a lot of these tests done, and you know, especially genetic testing, which we can sort of touched on before. But do you want to just maybe comment on how young you think a woman could even go in to have genetic testing? Is there an age that's too young or... That's a great question. So technically, you cannot have genetic testing in relation to these tumor suppression genes until the age of 18. And even at the age of 18, the knowledge, there's not a lot that can be done with a known genetic mutation, as it relates to breast cancer, at least. So most of the NCCN, which is the national, so it's like a comprehensive cancer network, they have guidelines that they've established based on the evidence and the literature for actionable items for a known genetic mutations. So as an example, anyone diagnosed or found to have a genetic mutation of BRCA2, they have actual set points for you need to have your ovaries out by X or recommended to have your ovaries out by X age, recommended to have your breasts by, you know, your risk-reducing mastectomy by such and such age. And before the risk-reducing mastectomy, these are the ways that you need to be screened starting as early as 25. So if this you is have important it. for really college-bound women to know this. Exactly, which is why I'm on Instagram, which is why you know, I'm trying to target young women with this information. It's why I work with organizations like Bright Pink, also to educate and empower young women and their providers. So exactly, there are a lot of things that actually come with a known genetic mutation. And it's not just related to breast cancer for a lot of these. So for BRCA2, they also have to get eye tests for certain things that the cancers that can develop in the eye, they have to get blood tests for pancreatic cancer. There are a lot of things that come along with it. And there are so many different ways that it can impact the decisions of their life and their loved one's life. So actually a great example is one of our friends that you interviewed recently, right? Anita Patel, yeah. her sister-in-law's diagnosis really had a major impact on her own life. And while I wish that she didn't have to go through that, I'm actually so glad that she had that information in hand and that she and her husband were able to have those conversations and make that decision that that's something that they wanted to do. So for anyone that was unable to catch that podcast, some of the background on that is that 
Dr. Patel's husband had the BRCA gene in his family, which they knew because his sister was diagnosed with breast cancer. And so Dr. Patel and her husband were actually able to choose an embryo through fertility treatments that did not have the BRCA gene, which is really just science blowing my mind and just knowing that those options exist and that we can really do those things in 2019 and beyond. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the technology, the capabilities are amazing. And I think it's, again, great that they were at least able to have those options on the table. And that's what this is all about. I'm not telling any woman what she has to do. I'm just offering options. If you would like to reduce your risk, these are the ways that you can do it. If you would like to be educated on how to get screened or how to get testing or when you should get testing, And I think that's what it's all about is providing the information, empowering our patients, and then, you know, hoping that they make the decisions that are best for them. Totally. And, you know, I totally echo that sentiment. One of the biggest things that we want to do here at FemHealth is just give women the right information, evidence-based information straight from the doctor. That way they know it's reliable. They know their options. They know the kind of homework they have to do. And, you know, it is work, you know, like you have to own your health. You have to go out there and do the work. But, you know, God, I mean, you're telling me 18 and 25 is these numbers. I don't know what I was doing at 18, but definitely wasn't worrying about my health. So, you know, it's really important now that we have all these avenues to get to people and get to women. They should know. They should know that these are the questions they should be asking at a young age. And, you know, just such great information. I know we packed a lot of stuff in here. And I really just want to thank you for taking time out to discuss all this and really go into some details for us. And if any of you are on Instagram, check out Dr. Mullick at Anjali Mullick, MD. And if any of you want to check out Fem Health on Instagram, we're at Fem Health Project. And you can also check out our other episodes as well as the one that we just talked about at www.femhealthproject.com. So Anjali, thanks for being here on the show. Any sort of last words for our audience? This has been great. And as you said, I also was an 18 and 25 year old who did not realize the decisions that I was making really could have long lasting impact. So just, you know, take charge of your health, get the information and make the decisions that, you know, really could have an impact for a long time. Awesome. Thanks so much for being here. We'll see you guys next time. 